In December 1932, in the pages of pulp magazine Weird Tales, there appeared a character who would come to define an entire subgenre of fantasy fiction. In a story entitled The Phoenix on the Sword, readers were first introduced to author Robert E. Howard's dark-haired Sumerian warrior, Conan. By the time of his death in 1936, Howard had written 21 stories, fleshing out not only the character of Conan, but the Hyborian age in which he lived. In 1982, Howard's creation leapt onto movie screens in a film directed by John Milius, starring Austrian bodybuilder Arnold Schwarzenegger. Join us for the days of high adventure. This is Conan the Barbarian. Warrior. Thief. Gladiator. Conqueror. Conan. They said you would come. Man of great strength. Welcome to the first episode in our first series of 2023, Get Me Another, Conan the Barbarian. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me as always is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Do you want to live forever? <laughs> I absolutely do, Rob. I absolutely yeah, I do. do. Uh, for those who have listened to our show before, you'll know that we explore the movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. This week, and in the weeks to come, we'll be examining the wave of sword and sorcery films that began with 1982's Conan the Barbarian. As we mentioned, Conan was the creation of author Robert E. Howard, who before his tragic, untimely death at age 30, wrote only not only the Conan stories, but tales of characters such as Cull of Atlantis and Solomon Kane. He was an individual of tremendous imagination. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the mythology he created for his Hyburian age in which the Conan tales were set is comparable to that of J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth. Also, when John Milius describes you as a complete nut, that is really saying something. <laughs> uh, like Tolkien's world, the tales of the Hyburian age were set in Earth's distant past, Sometime between when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. Uh, this allowed Howard to create a quasi-historical setting that was filled with familiar nations and landmarks, but was nevertheless freed of the burden of historical accuracy. Aside from his physical strength, Howard's Conan was a skilled and cunning warrior. His people, the Sumerians, were a quasi-Celtic race descended from the inhabitants of Atlantis. The influence of Conan was so pervasive 
1961, American author Fritz Lieber coined the term sword and sorcery specifically to describe the type of fantasy adventure fiction popularized by Howard. Sword and sorcery stories usually feature adventurous heroes who take on action-oriented quests. They feature violent battles, magic, and romance. But unlike what is known as high fantasy, such as The Lord of the Rings, they generally involve lower stakes and personal battles rather than dangers which threaten the entire world. By the 1960s, the Conan stories would be collected in paperback editions and original Conan novels by authors such as Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter were published. The evocative cover art created by artist Frank Frazetta would solidify the image of Conan in the public's mind. And we can't say enough about how Frazetta's artwork was sort of key to the creation and, and the popularizing of that character. I think it's comparable to Alan Lee and the work of J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, there was also a popular Marvel comic series in the 1970s that counts among its legion of fans none other than former President Barack Obama. Momentum for a Conan feature film began in the mid-70s with the backing of producers Edward Summer and Edward R. Pressman. The success of Star Wars in 1977 led to a greater interest in heroic adventure, and subsequently Pressman and Summer hired Oliver Stone to write the script. Uh, now, Rob, you'll find this interesting. Stone's initial version of the Conan script uh, was set actually in a post-apocalyptic future, ah. where Conan battles five, like 50,000 mutants uh, in defense of a princess and her kingdom. Like a whole army of mutant characters were going to be in Oliver Stone's Conan, uh, which might have been difficult to realize. That is a movie that I would love to see, and it sounds very early 80s Oliver Stone, so I'm, I'm all it in really on that. It really does, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, absolutely. Uh, they looked at numerous directors for the project, including Ridley Scott, um, but eventually John Milius came on board to direct, and he convinced Dino De Laurentiis to finance and co-produce the film. <laughs> when Milius came on board, he rewrote the script himself, discarding most of Stone's version, except for a few key scenes such as Conan's crucifixion, which came directly out of the Robert E. Howard stories. For the title role, Pressman and Summer considered our actors, and if you can imagine this, it's amazing, Charles Bronson was considered. Who boy. Sylvester Stallone was considered. Yeah, I could see it. But after seeing the landmark bodybuilding documentary Pumping Iron, they settled on Arnold Schwarzenegger to play the title role. That is amazing. If you have ever seen Pumping Iron. Um, I have not, actually. Oh, it, it actually is a fascinating documentary. It's wonderful. But... Arnold in that movie in particular, um, you can definitely see that star quality because he has that inner charisma that just comes across. Right. But it is also, um, I'll just say it was not, it would not be obvious to anyone watching Pumping Iron to literally just anyone off the street that you would be able to get what you got out of Schwarzenegger. Um, I, I want to check it out at some point. Oh, it's wonderful. The film also stars Jerry Lopez, Sandal Bergman, Max von Sydow, Mako, and James Earl Jones as the villainous Thulsa Du. Filming began in October 1980 at Shepard and Studios in England, and subsequently on location in Spain, where most of the movie was shot. And I think the the Spain being the primary filming location really helps fill out this world because you have such a variety of terrains, from snowy mountains oh, yeah. to arid deserts, and it, it's and that they found that all in one country is amazing. 
Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. Um, the the locations and the set work in this all oh, very yeah. very good and doing and and not going overboard with stuff. I mean, they they clearly had a no. budget on this. It's not low budget, but they they couldn't do whatever they wanted. Uh, I guess like yes, uh, five hundred mutants attacking him in the post apocalyptic near future, <laughs> perhaps. 50,000 mutants, Rob. They wanted 50,000. And in a pre-CGI days, that means 50,000 extras with mutant prosthetics. And I can't even begin to conceive of that. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis originally planned for a Christmas 1981 release, but the first sneak preview didn't occur till February of 1982 in Houston, Texas. And the film was an immediate hit. More previews followed in the months to come, uh, and then the film went wide on May 14th, 1982. So let's get into this movie, because Hell this yeah. movie is fascinating, oh, yeah. and I love it. Uh, I'll, I will say this. I, I One thing I can that, that, to me, is so key to, to Conan the Barbarian working is one word, verisimilitude. Because this movie has it in spades. Despite being a fantasy world, it feels absolutely grounded and real. It really does. Uh, people talk about Star Wars with uh, the lived-in look and whatnot. Um, oh. But this one, you really are in kind of dirt villages and just traveling across lands. Um, yet at the same time, the design and the beauty, this... Uh, and the the big example for me is this is the most beautiful sword I think has ever been put yeah. on film. I, I it yeah. is so fantastic. Um, and 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 we open with that. I mean, that's the. I mean, we open actually with a, a quote from Frederick Nietzsche that which does not kill us makes us stronger, which I don't necessarily believe is true in all situations, but it certainly fits the story that Milius is telling here. Oh, this movie. This movie is all about Nietzsche. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It is absolutely. Yes. Um, we then have the voiceover from Mako, who plays the Wizard of the Mounds and describes himself as Conan's chronicler. And then we have the image of the forging of the sword by Conan's father. And while well, well, Conan, young Conan and his mother look on. Uh, and it's just a great. Let me say this. This is a movie that I think is filled with craftsmanship. That's the word that comes to mind. And that you begin with a scene of literal craftsmanship, I think is just fantastic for a movie that is just filled with it. Yeah, so many things in the beginning here. But the uh, the worldview of this movie is encased in that, that quote, uh, that Nietzschean yeah. quote. And it is, I will just say overall, this is not a dark film. Like, it, it is presented tonally as rousing adventure. It's gritty. Yeah. You know, it's tough. Um, it's not, like, in, for eight-year-olds, although I probably saw it about that time. Uh, <laughs> but this movie is, uh, and we'll I'll touch on this as we go through the story, has one of the bleakest views of humanity yeah. and life that you will, that you will see encased in a woohoo rousing adventure story <laughs> um it is just uh it's something it's interesting um in william goldman's classic book adventures in the screen trade he writes quote you don't fret a whole lot about subtext if you're writing conan the barbarian <laughs> 
And I feel like this whole movie is a rebuttal to that notion because this movie is filled to the brim with subtext, beginning with the riddle of steel, which Conan's father tells him about mm-hmm. early in the movie. Fire and wind come from the sky, from the gods of the sky. But Krum is your god. Krum, and he lives in the earth. Once giants lived in the earth, Conan. And in the darkness of chaos, they fooled Krum. And they took from him the enigma of steel. Krum was angered, and the earth shook. And fire and wind struck down these giants, and they threw their bodies into the waters. But in their rage, the gods forgot the secret of steel and left it on the battlefield. And we who found it are just men, not gods, not giants, just men. And the secret of steel has always carried with it a mystery. You must learn its riddle, Conan. You must learn its discipline. For no one, no one in this world can you trust. Not men, not women, not beasts. This you can trust. Rob, I have to ask, have you told your daughter about the riddle of steel yet? Well, I didn't present it as a riddle, but I did for certain, (laughs) as any good parent would, let her know that you can't trust men, women, or beasts. No. Only the sword. No. Only the sword. Only the sword. Yes. This this you can trust. Yes. Um, it's it's interesting because the riddle of steel is really about the meaning of strength, and it's not until very late in the film that Conan comes to understand what that really is. Uh, and and I'll say a lot of this movie, and we'll talk about it as we go, is about Conan's father being wrong. Yeah. Like he says things that are just that that turn out to that Conan later learns to be just not true. And one of them is that, you know, steel is the thing you can trust. I, oh, by the way, I, I should mention in that in that speech, uh, he talks about uh, giants that stole mm. the, the, the riddle of steel the, 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 from the gods. In Howard's mythology, those giants that Conan's father talks about are the Atlanteans, whose civilization collapsed before the beginning of the Hyborian Age. And they were the ones who first discovered how to make steel. Later in the film, Conan stumbles into an Atlantean tomb, and the sword he's wielding actually for most of the movie comes from that civilization. Oh, wow. That's that's pretty cool stuff. Uh, I did want to bring up uh, one other thing that Conan's father is dead wrong about, according to this film, and that is uh, his father is a very religious man who also tells Conan the story of, what, Crum, who lives... The, Crum. The, who, the god underground. And... Um, for those of you who have even a passing knowledge of Frederick Nietzsche and a film that yeah. might put a quote of his at the beginning, uh, you might not be surprised to learn that this film and Conan's journey is also learning that religion is bullshit and there is no God. Yeah. There is only yourself. Uh, <laughs> there is that. Yes, there is yourself and there is your will. Yes, absolutely. Uh, young Conan's village is attacked and both his father and mother are killed by the forces of Thulsa Doom, who appears to be in search of steel and the secret of steel. Uh, Conan's dad takes an axe to the back and a dog to the face, and while Conan's mother 
uh, is silently beheaded. And there's this amazing moment where she's face to face with Thulsa Doom and Conan's mother lowers her weapon. Um, and, and I want to mention it because I think it's important later. Mm-hmm. I also have to say Conan's mother is a smoke show to use the parlance of our times. Yeah. Um, I don't know who that actress is, but my goodness. And that whole um, sequence is almost without dialogue and it's a fairly long one. I mean, mo- yeah. a lot of the opening aside from, uh, the voiceover. Uh, in, in terms of this opening scene, I just want to mention uh, John Milius' own words. There's nothing like a village being wiped out to open a movie. Yeah, this is, uh, it is um, skinning the cat, maybe, to begin the film. Yeah. It's, it's, your hero doesn't have to do anything good if the other guy is just terrible. Um, Although Conan does get a save the cat moment in a little bit. We'll, we'll talk about it because I, I, I pointed it out. A couple of notes here. First, I want to say that John Williams' film is both faithful to Robert E. Howard's Conan stories and not at the same time. It's not a direct adaptation of any one story, and it includes elements from several. Uh, Characters such as Thulsa Doom and Valeria are composites of characters that that are found in the Conan stories. Subutai is an original character created for the film. Um, But at the same time, while, while the details are not necessarily taken word for word out of Howard's work, the spirit is there. It's really a great uh, example of you don't necessarily have to adapt everything word for word from the book, but you, if you capture the spirit, that's what's really important. And, and it makes me want to compare this movie to another one from around the same time. Now, Rob, this is going to, you're going to say it first. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make this, you're going to be like, you're, you're Chris, okay. you're out of your mind, but I promise you, once you think about it, you'll be like, oh, that's really good. Uh, the movie that this movie reminds me of most is Richard Donner's Superman. Chris, you're out of your mind. <laughs> I, I get well, it. I get know, it. I, mean, I get now, it. In terms of their respective worldviews, those movies could not be more different. But both of them take on these iconic, bigger-than-life characters and their worlds in a way that feels authentic and believable. And in both cases... Those films would not have succeeded if their respective filmmakers had not absolutely believed in the material. And I I would say just uh, from what you, with you mentioning that, the one thing uh, that just pops in my mind for both of those films is that they are less concerned with the story. They, they have story, don't yeah. get me wrong, and it's, it's you know, a good one. But they're much more concerned about the character, getting the character right, and then the tone yeah. of the piece. Yeah. And that those, I think, elements are first in, in both of those. So, okay, you're not crazy. <laughs> um, we should mention that uh, Malias does something here that's very interesting um, that we would see very frequently in comic book movies to follow where he ties the hero's origin directly to the villain. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, that's uh, even now, you know, Tim Burton's Batman, which we talked about in our first series does that. And, and, and this was not something from the book in, 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 in the Conan stories, uh, the Thulsa doom is actually a character. The name Thulsa doom is taken from a cull story. And he shares character similarities with the sorcerer Toth Amon from uh, from the Conan stories. Most of Thulsa Doom seems to be inspired by cult leaders of the 60s and 70s, including Charles Manson and Jim Jones. Um, and, and you could see how that was so in the zeitgeist 
in the late 70s, early 80s when this movie was made that 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 I mean, he really feels like a prehistoric Jim Jones in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And uh, my one uh, bone of contention to pick with this movie is that it is it is yet another, uh, (laughs) you know, film out of the U.S. and and the West that uh, really does pick and choose about what it's going to take from Buddhism uh, and show of Eastern religions (laughs) and the light in which they show that. Uh, because uh, emptiness has nothing to do with snake cult gods uh, trying to, uh, <laughs> that you should bow down before as your god. Um, uh, for, hey, for Rob, record, a couple of years yeah. ago, they were just another snake cult, but now, you know, they got towers in every city. Yeah, you know, real estate, baby, that's what it's all about. <laughs> <laughs> land, land. It's like Lex Luthor in Superman. Yeah. Land, land, land. You know, people will pay through the nose to get it. Following his parents' murder, Conan is sold into slavery, and he's taken to the Wheel of Pain, where he and other children push this giant wheel around in a circle. And it's this great way of of showing the passage of time. Um, you know, as you know, you have the beginning of the wheel, we see a whole group of kids pushing it. By the end, it's just Conan, and there's that moment where you know like you see it's obviously it's an adult's legs and he looks up and it's 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger and it's it is a it is a, an incredible moment and it's just a great way to do the passage of time for sure and the little details um in those shots of the feet when you trance uh when you go through time and now it's adult Arnold Schwarzenegger all of a sudden you just see a rut in the ground yeah that rut from the years of him walking it and you know would they have maybe scuffed the dirt in i don't care it's amazing um and also it there is, is it really the, is. the symbolism also the symbolism of the wheel itself um you know there is that we the turning of the wheel of fortune there is mm-hmm. the uh, you know the, the passage of time with the wheel um there are elements uh in uh buddhism which this movie does take yep. some elements from uh against all odds <laughs> uh where you do have the turning of the wheel of dharma um which would not be a good metaphor for anything in this movie <laughs> at no, all absolutely not um conan is then he's trained as a gladiator you know once he's an adult he's trained as a gladiator and he has great success in that vocation and it's during this sequence that conan speaks his very first line oh, yeah. What is best in life, Rob? Yes. To crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentations of the women. Yeah. And uh, this this also in the fighting, when you get the gladiating, uh, oh, has one of my great. favorite voiceover lines, uh, where you get, uh, he did not care anymore. Life and death, the same. Only the crowd would be there to greet him with howls of less than fury. He began to realize his sense of worth. He mattered. That's great. And I, I want to call this out because I, I, there's an overall point. Um, in many ways, this is a rags to riches story. So yeah. Conan, whose family is murdered by marauding, you know, Thulsa Doom. He's an orphan who's then kidnapped and enslaved and literally chained to this wheel until he's he's the last one who survives and he's big and strong. And then he goes off and starts kicking ass. Now, what I yeah. I think there's a certain appeal about this, uh, even though some of the worldview starts to 
starts to get a little bleak early, uh, later on with like, what is any human capable of? Uh, is is there such a thing as actual love or not? Or is everything just self-servicing? But the thing for me is that this is a film that acknowledges how cruel the world can be, right? How life yeah. can be filled with suffering. At least we can experience it that way. That is very Buddhist. Um, sure. But then you get this hero who has been, you know, just kicked in the nuts by by the world and he rises and he is strong and big and he can then take care of business he can take care of himself he can go through and anyone who was bad anyone who did bad stuff to him they're all gonna pay now now this might be a fantasy on the level of a 12 year old sure plenty of adults hold this but i do think there is something comforting in the world is terrible, but you can be strong and punish those who fuck with you. <laughs> and I I think that is the core appeal of Conan. Yeah. And why the movie doesn't play as bleak as maybe it could. I think it does. And 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 there's also, you know, we're going to get in a little bit further into the Riddle of Steel because they go through a couple of iterations before they settle on what the real meaning is. Uh, but we, I think we should take an opportunity here to discuss Schwarzenegger's performance in Conan the Barbarian because I think he is terrific. Yeah, uh, he doesn't speak a whole lot, you know. Like there's, and and no doubt that some of that he still had a very thick Austrian accent at the time. But here's here's the thing, Rob. Acting is not just saying lines. No, Schwarzenegger brings a physicality and a believability to this role that is extraordinary. And, and part of what makes you believe the world, the world is, is um, you know, is believable because he is believable. And, and, and that is all in his performance. He, he is absolutely convincing. And again, I would compare it to Christopher Reeve as Superman in a film just a few years earlier. Yes. The, uh, the thing that really struck me about uh, Schwarzenegger in this film is that there are different sides to Conan and he nails all of them. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is the brooding brute. And obviously there's the action, the fighter. But there are moments of Conan laughing. There are moments of Conan celebrating, um, uh, you know, and not, not in a star Wars kind of way. There's, there's moments of Conan, you know, in, in, in the throes of passion. Again, at this point in time, not a surprise to anyone to say, Arnold Schwarzenegger is very charming on film, but he's very charming on film. And there are a lot of guys that you could have got who I don't know that would have brought that multifaceted uh, to the performance. I think you would have gotten a lot of people who would have just played it pretty serious um, the whole way. But like when he meets the wizard, I mean, that is such a charming little fun moment and we'll get there. But um uh, yes. Amongst many others. Well, and I think that's something as we go through the series, we'll see that, you know, a lot of these sword and sorcery films that would follow will will struggle to have a lead as compelling and 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 multifaceted as Schwarzenegger is in this movie. Um, Conan is eventually freed from bondage. And I want to mention he still wears that wheel pendant around yeah. his neck for a significant portion of the film. And, and I think uh, when it comes off, we'll mention it when we, we get there, uh, yeah. is, is a significant moment for him. Um, he, uh, and I wanted to, to mention the man who frees him from the wheel 
is the is a he was a kid when Conan was a kid. Yes. And he's the same person who chained him to the wheel. And they never really go into it, but you get this in this kind of montage of things happening, uh, including then Conan becoming the warrior uh, and fighting for the amusement of his captors. Uh, you get the feeling that there's almost like a little bit of a brother relationship here. Yeah, because he's he's a kid when he chains him to the wheel. Like he's a couple of years older than Conan, and then he's a couple of years older than Conan when he when he lets him go. Like it's, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting bit because he never gives an exact reason why Conan's free. Just that you know now he's now you're free. Go and uh, yeah, you know, and and the movie is in some ways it's it's rather episodic. Like uh, you know, as as one would imagine it would be Conan going from one adventure to the next. He encounters the ancient tomb where he finds the Atlantean sword. Uh, he has an encounter with a witch, which is amazing scene, <laughs> amazing yes. scene. Um, and then eventually he meets up with his companions Subutai and Valeria. Uh, and and the binding agent for these adventures, of course, is his search for the snake worshiping warriors who murdered his parents. Um, again, I just want to come back to the production design on this movie because it's so mm-hmm. good. Like, and, and Ron Cobb was the production designer. He had previously worked on uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's Unrealized Dune, which is the wellspring of production design for movies oh, from uh, sci-fi and fantasy movies uh in the, the the late 70s and 80s everybody worked on that even though it was never made he also worked on star wars alien and raiders of the lost ark uh it's an interesting thing they didn't utilize matte paintings for this movie rather they built scale models of structures and they positioned them in front of the camera so they appeared full size the city of Zamora is 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 a model that is that is forced perspective in front of the camera, and I just think the effect is absolutely incredible and holds up. It's as convincing as any modern computer generated image you're going to see. Yeah, I mean the the closest modern um, comp you could do would be Peter Jackson's uh, Lord of the Rings yeah. trilogy, where they did a. I mean they they took that much much further than uh, than yeah. in this movie, but. It does. It looks fantastic. I mean, there's nothing in this movie that in that way looks dated. You could release this thing now and I yeah, think it would yeah. hold up for audiences. Um, I also want to mention the the Basil Polidorius score. Oh my goodness. It is one of my favorite scores of, of the era. Uh, and, you know, and very different from sort of the John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith kind of rousing. And, and there's a lot of John, great John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith scores of this time. But the Basil Polidorus Conan score is unique and amazing, and I love it. For sure. This is an iconic score, and one that that fits everything. And again, it has different gears, because it's not yeah. all bombastic. Although, when it is, it's amazing. But um, yeah. there are there are quieter moments. There are you know scarier moments, if you want. Um, and it, th- that all works, too. Conan and company eventually raid the Tower of the Serpent, where they do battle not only with Thulsa Doom's followers, but with a giant snake. Uh, and I love this sequence because to me it has all the hallmarks of a classic Dungeons and Dragons party adventure. Like it just feels like that's what it is. I love the practical snake. Like I love the fight with the snake. Yeah. It is so good. And, and, Again, it's something we've talked about with some other fantasy films. There's that tactile quality to it because they had to do it for real, you know. And obviously, you didn't have a snake that big, 
you know, although I wouldn't be surprised if John Milius had found one. And you do get, um, this is a sequence that just on kind of the, the plot detail level, I love because Conan is big dude. We've seen that he's fairly unstoppable uh, in his fights. And yet uh, they want this snake to be able to kind of get the drop on him. And right. it's a wonderful character moment because as the, they have the they have the jewel, he's going to leave with his thief friend from this bo- the bottom of the pit. They haven't even who's seen a the skilled snake. archer, by the way. Yeah, yes, they haven't even seen the snake, and uh, his friend is gone through the tunnel. And Conan stops because he sees the symbol of the snake cult, which yes. is he saw as a child when they uh, murdered his family. It's like their corporate logo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh and unlike uh you know many corporations, they don't change it. They keep they yeah. stay classic. Yeah. yeah. Um but in any case, he's transfixed by that. That allows the snake to come up behind him and then then you get the awesome snake fight. But this is um yet another point along the way that we're starting to realize that maybe Conan won't be in it just for the money. Maybe he's in it for the blood too, eventually. Yeah. Eventually, the three of them are brought before King Osric, who has heard of their exploits and wants them to bring back his daughter, who has fallen under the spell of Thulsadum. And while Subatai and Valeria are against taking the job, Conan sneaks off and to try and find and kill Thulsadum himself, which is a a mistake. Like he, this is this is an error in judgment by Conan at this point. I, I also want to mention I love this plot of. It feels like it could be from a Clint Eastwood movie of the 70s. The ex-cop gets hired to get a rich man's daughter back from a brainwashing cult. Like, I I feel like I've seen that Eastwood movie, even though I'm not really sure that I have, but it feels like it could be. Uh, Conan attempts to pass himself off as one of the cult members, uh, but he he is fairly quickly identified. I also want to mention uh, the the scene where, uh, you know, all the cult members are are kind of gathering at Thulsa Doom's mountain compound uh, really shows you John Malias's opinion of hippies. Yes. Which ain't ain't that part. <laughs> Uh, but he's quickly identified. Like he, 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 it's not like he, he gets in there and gets stuff done. He fairly quickly is identified and captured. And you have this great scene where he's brought before Thulsa Doom and Doom talks about the riddle of steel. Steel isn't strong, boy. Flesh is stronger. Look around you. There, on the rocks, that beautiful girl. Come to me, my child. That is strength, boy. That is power. The strength and power of flesh. What is steel compared to the hand that wields it? Look at the strength of your body, the desire in your heart. I gave you this. Such a waste. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And that scene is so fantastic. It actually has my favorite like little moment in the whole movie. Uh, which is when uh, Thulsa Doom is talking to the, you know, Conan's been beat up and he's talking yeah. to him, you know. And uh, 
and he says uh, that he uh, the thing that he's most mad about Conan about isn't stealing the jewel. It's killing his pet snake. He raised that snake. And then he says, Thorgrim is beside himself with grief. And then they yes. cut to Thorgrim, who's like practically crying. And it is the best <laughs> moment in the movie. For it is me. great. It is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Um, and then, of course, they send Conan to be crucified on the Tree of Woe, um, where at, on the point of death, he's found by Subutai and Valeria, which to me is is a moment where it, disproving some one of the things that, that his father said. This, is, this whole sequence is about learning that his father wasn't necessarily right, because, you know, you can't trust. Well, he can trust Valeria and Subutai. They come a- after him and rescue him. Uh, and. Yeah, along with the Wizard of the Mounds, who's fantastic, uh, they summon the spirits to heal Conan, although Valeria is warned that it will take a heavy toll, and she is willing to pay that toll because she loves him. Absolutely. Um, And Conan on that Tree of Woe, uh, those shots are a Frazetta painting come to life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they are amazing. And I don't mean that they're a specific Frazetta painting, but just they are a Frazetta painting come to life. uh, Just like the positioning of the body, etc. I also, um, there are so many movies, including our next one, that have, uh, that will crucify the hero and give them the, the Christ metaphor, right? Yeah. Most of them just do it and then pretend they're not doing it. Like it's, oh, this is a normal thing, right? This right. movie says, oh no, if we're going to do the Christ metaphor, we're going to crucify him. He's going to die and he's going to come back from the dead. I'm like, the only thing they're missing is the cave, Chris. They did it yeah. all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it is fantastic. Um, once Conan is fully healed, the three sneak into Thulsa Doom's lair in, and they abscond with the princess. I love that they're all in like the 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 camouflage, where it feels like oh, it's yes. something out of Apocalypse Now. John Milius had famously written the original version of Apocalypse Now uh, that was eventually made by Francis Ford Coppola, but he, you know there was a long time in development, uh, and it feels like it's out of Apocalypse Now. Um, and and when they go in. Uh, they disrupt of all the, a cannibalistic orgy uh, where, you know, like the secret of, of Thulsa Doom is that he's, he's cannibal and you have the, the split pea and hand soup being served to the, the orgy goers. Uh, and there's another Frazetta painting right there with the woman, oh, um, for sure. you know, kind of on the, on the, the, the column and, and, and uh, chained to the column. Also, we have the moment where Thulsa Doom, who's kind of watching this whole proceeding transforms into a snake and it is such a great and unsettling thing because it's all done with practical effects and these i mean look i'm not going to sit here and say that it looks 100 percent realistic but it looks good and yeah. it doesn't it, i don't know with the stretching of the face and all of that and the design um it looks really, really good, and I think holds up in a way that I was actually surprised. Um, and there's just something so unsettling about, like, then you cut to away, and it's the giant snake in his, like, robes and stuff. And there's there's a portion of it that's kind of maybe comical, but it's also just really eerie. Like, everything, like, that, that whole sequence is really a descent into hell straight out of, like, Greek myth. With a little Caligula thrown in, uh, for yeah. good measure. On the way out, though, Valeria is hit with a snake arrow. And she died. And it's this great bit where, where he 
takes a snake, it straightens out, and he shoots it as an arrow, and it goes right into her. And then when they remove it from her, it's a snake once more. It's really, really cool. Um, and uh, and it's while watching Valeria's body burn on the funeral pyre that he finally takes off that wheel medallion that he's been wearing for most of the movie. And and you know basically. You know, this is this is his moment where he's actually freed because he's doing. He's not even acting for for his, the loss of his parents. He's now acting for something in his life. Yes, he the he has broken the wheel. Um, yes, you know, literally at this point, and uh, this goes into what I find interesting about this is that um, you're talking about the will of one man being the only thing of action in the world, and you're also talking about. Um, this, uh, essentially this is, this whole movie is a tribal view, right? It is not yeah. one man against the world. So it's not nihilistic in, in that sense that many of us might think of, but, um, this is a movie where essentially, uh, if anyone's outside of your tribe, anything goes, um, yeah. and the only valor that exists is avenging mom and dad or avenging, uh, your your girlfriend um, and, yeah, and, and that's basically. it and then and then take what take what's yours because uh let's face it on in some fashion what conan does at the end of this movie with thulsa doom and his followers is exactly what thulsa doom did to conan's little village and his family yes. at the beginning of the movie but because we like his tribe it's supposed to be a heroic thing um, I personally am not sure that it is. And look, I love this movie. It's a great movie. I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that it's not, but it is a totally bleak ass worldview, uh, but you won't feel it. You only, right. you know, it's presented tonally as rousing adventure and he is triumphant. Yeah. It's, it's a very curious mix because you're right. He does exactly the same thing that, that, uh, that Thulsa Doom did at the beginning. And, you know, it's, it's, that's super interesting. Um, as Conan, obviously at this point now that, that the, uh, the forces of Thulsa Doom are massing to come recapture the princess and what do Conan and Subutai do at the battle of the mounds <laughs> vastly outnumbered? They home alone that shit. Oh yeah. Uh, they set up all these traps and, and it's, 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 and they're able to, to do the, they're able to fight off a, a, a force of superior numbers with their, with their wits and their ingenuity. And it's, it's great. And it's the whole battle of the mound sequence is terrific. Yeah. The, uh, this is not a movie with wall to wall fighting, but when it happens, it is impactful. Yes. Uh, it is well choreographed, obviously uh, well shot with uh, the folks involved with this. There's an incredible moment where um, where the, one of the, the Doom's lieutenants um, is car- still carrying the sword that they had taken from Conan's father. And in the battle, Conan breaks that sword. He swings the, the Atlantean sword that he, he picked up and he breaks that sword and kills the lieutenant. And it, and so he now has his father's sword broken. And at one, it's, it's interesting because at one, in one moment he is both reclaiming his birthright. And at the same time, you know, rejecting the idea that steel is the strongest thing there is because steel can be broken. And even, 
uh, False Doom is wrong because he says, well, flesh is, is, is stronger than steel, but flesh can be broken. The, I think the ultimately it's will. Mm-hmm. And we get into the final scene where, where uh, Conan and the princess who is now broken, she's, she's no longer under his mind control spell. Um, they sneak back into the mountain fortress and confront Doom. And there's this, this moment where Doom claims to be Conan's metaphorical father. Like, you know, he's that, that Conan is who he is because Doom made him so. And there's a moment where Conan seems to be under Doom's spell, just as his mother was at the very beginning of the movie. But then Conan's will breaks the spell and he uses his father's broken sword to behead Doom. And, you know, and then he just you know, throws it down. And, and, and as soon as he does that, it's like the spell is broken. And all of these acolytes who are carrying these torches, who are getting ready to go do some kind of mass murder thing, you get the impression that it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's D-Day for the Thulsa Doom cult. And, you know, they just start, they throw the, the torches in the, in the pool and start extinguishing them. And it's, it's amazing. It's the end of this movie is amazing. And I'm not entirely sure, you know, as you say, like there is a, there is some moral quandaries abounding, but it's still fantastic. Yeah. And and look, I'm not shedding a, a tear for Thulsa Doom. But uh, no, 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 there, there is no, a lot. Rob is not coming out as pro Thulsa Doom. Let's yeah. just disabuse anybody of that notion right yeah. now. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, but so much to unpack at the end here. So breaking yeah. his father's sword, totally yes. a symbol for no longer being chained to the past. Right. And uh, breaking away even from one's family unit to go off with your own will to start your own tribe, your own family unit, which I think. It, because that moment has been there, uh, the fake father attempt by Thulsa Doom isn't going to work. And then just to right. get back to uh, a movie that loves Nietzsche, uh, <laughs> Nietzsche. <laughs> yes. uh, at, at the very end, Conan kills religion. Um, your religion is hollow and empty, and all it takes is the will of man to break it uh, like a twig, and then it will all fall apart without some hierarchical figure uh, at the top, who is uh, really keeping everyone in line. Um, once you behead the snake, it's all right. done. And 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 you're telling me that you don't need subtext in a Conan the Barbarian movie. I think you absolutely need subtext in a Conan the Barbarian movie. And this movie does it incredibly well. Um, I mean, there's just something very elemental about the whole thing. And uh, we end the film with this shot and it's like it's kind of like the end of Godfather Part 2 oh, where yeah. you see Michael Corleone sitting in the 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 Tahoe compound but he's a little bit older in a, in subtle ways it's uh, here you see the slightly older Conan sitting on the throne and a voiceover that tells you that in time he became a king by his own hand and this story shall also be told unfortunately it was not um, you know, and, and that's, to me, it's like, I, I, oh man, uh, that while there was a sequel to this film, Conan the Destroyer, which we will talk about in a later episode of the series, it didn't follow in the direction Milius intended. He envisioned a trilogy with each film centered around a common theme. The first film, Strength, which we obviously see. Yep. That is, that is what this that movie tracks. is about. <laughs> the second film was to be about responsibility. And the third film, Loyalty and Tradition. 
So it, it's interesting. I would love to have seen what that three-film arc would have looked like. I'm guessing that the second film would have become, would have been about how Conan came to wear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon his troubled brow. And then a third film might have been, you know, an older Conan going on one last quest. And Rob, I'll tell you, in the age of legacy sequels, ah. while we probably won't see the second film, it's not too late for an old King Conan movie. I would be there in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I do wonder from what you describe about the planned trilogy, if um, if maybe the, the second and third films would have taken the worldview into a different area. Uh, you know, that's what I think might have been so interesting yeah. is if you have because because here's a movie that even within the first film you start out with a with a, a philosophy that is ultimately rejected by the end of the movie the the riddle of steel, but it's not about steel it's about will and it's about it's about the internal strength. Uh, so who knows what what that trilogy might have looked like in the end? He might have been a very different character by the time he was, uh, you know, Conan the King sitting on the throne of Aquilonia. Um, and Chris, I'm very very happy on a personal level that I did watch a movie about inner strength because I needed that to get through our next film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, as a consequence of Conan's high profile, a number of other sword and sorcery movies went into production around the same time, and one of those actually hit theaters a few weeks before Conan's wide release. This is The Sword and the Sorcerer. Listen now of a time long past when sorcery thrived and wild adventure was forever in the offing. A deadly sorcerer is called out of nightmare by a ruthless king driven into evil and a mystical sword is forged for a mighty warrior who rises out of legend to topple a kingdom. dungeons for one night with you. That's uh, a slim bounty for such a task. Why is your bastard? determines the fate of an entire dynasty. Ah! 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 
and dragons, serpents and splendor, wizards and witches, danger and desire. Oh. And the mightiest of all heroes in the greatest of all adventures. The Sword and the Sorcerer. The Sword and the Sorcerer was directed by Albert Pugh, who had a long career making movies, often with fairly low budgets, but I will say he knew how to make the most of the resources he had. Uh, And he made feature films such as Radioactive Dreams, Cyborg, Alien from L.A., Nemesis, and the 1990 Captain America movie, which I am in in an odd way, a big fan of, I have to admit. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, uh, Albert Pune passed away uh, after a lengthy illness late last year. And uh, this film was written by Pune, Tom Karnowski, and John Stuckmeyer. And it was greenlit after the success of Excalibur in the spring of 1981. At that point, Conan the Barbarian was in production. And The Sword and the Sorcerer was specifically designed following a strategy that Roger Corman employed in several cases of beating that film into theaters and snapping up some of its ticket sales, a goal that they actually achieved because it was only slightly less uh, successful at the box office than Conan. And it it actually turned out to be the, the, the highest grossing independent film of 1982. I believe it. That VHS was... Uh on the shelf for years at my local video store and it got rented a few oh, times. Yeah. I had not, although this is another one that was a fever dream from my childhood that I had not revisited. And, uh, well, well then. Well, we're going to get, we'll get into oh, it. Yeah. Um, it was produced by the husband and wife team of Brandon and Marianne Chase, who had previously done alligator. Ooh. Um, and apparently there was a great deal of conflict between first-time director Pune and Brandon Chase. Pune nearly quit the movie multiple times, and Brandon Chase, in what is a really like actually gave himself the a film by credit. It's so weird. Uh, the Sword and the Sorcerer tells the story of Talon, whose parents, the king and queen of Adan, are deposed and murdered by the brutal warlord Titus Cromwell, with the help of a resurrected sorcerer, who he soon betrays. Years later, Talon returns to seek revenge and help overthrow the tyrant who now rules the land. The film stars Lee Horsley, Kathleen Beller, Simon McCorkendale, that's right, folks, TV's Manimal, George Baharis, Richard Lynch, and as the wizard Zusha, Richard Maul of Night Court. Bull himself plays the wizard uh, under under what is great makeup? There's it's a there's terrific makeup effects in this. Movie. Very 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 awesome makeup. Uh, looks almost Freddy Krueger esque as a couple things in this movie do. Frankly, uh, yeah. I also wanted to give a shout out to playing Darius. I don't know. Uh, maybe I is uh, Joe uh, Rigalbuto. Uh, and he, oh yeah, from, from Murphy, Murphy Brown. Brown. Yes, and he's got a. It's a smaller role, but it's you will see him for sure. He's it's it is a yes, absolutely. When he's on screen, he's prominent. <laughs> yeah, totally. He's yeah. at one point they actually considered both Lorenzo Lamas and David Hasselhoff for the lead role before they sell on Lee Horsley as Talon. Uh, and according to Pune, uh, Richard Lynch playing uh, uh, Titus Cromwell was quote hopped up on something 
and and it came through in the torture scenes oh. with Simon McCorkendale's character, where he's just like he is out, he is off the chain. Uh, Richard Lynch played numerous villainous roles throughout his career, including in a great film written and directed by Larry Cohen called And God Told Me To from mm, 1976. Yeah. He's amazing in that movie. And he's really good here, too. Absolutely. Um, the Sword and the Sorcerer is kind of in a tough position, sharing an episode with Conan the Barbarian. Both films are similar enough to invite comparison, but while Conan is clearly the better film, The Sword and the Sorcerer is still pretty entertaining in its own right. You know, it's... Yeah, I... I am so mixed about this movie. This is not a star crash, right? This is not a badly made film at all. No. Uh, And I will say that in many ways, it is just, it's it's the kind of bonkers and gonzo over the top. uh, We often say swinging for the fences every time. Uh, Yes. And and in a lot of the time, this movie does it very well and it is super entertaining. Uh, It's not slow. It's well paced. Um, but there is one element of the movie and we come up every now and again with elements of, of films where we say, well, you have to take it in context. It doesn't have the gender uh, pol- politics and views of the modern era. And so look, no, you know, they make that joke or they do that thing, or there's the one character and she's written poorly. And you're like, well, it's context. I can ignore it and see it for what it is at the time. The Sword and the Sorcerer makes that impossible because yeah. its view of women and, and the gender politics of this movie are so vile and in your face <laughs> and it, they never stop. I keep thinking, oh, that yeah. one thing's over. And then, no, they keep bringing it back and back and back. And it, yeah. man, oh, man, this movie is like... I, I don't even know, Chris. Well, I wrote in big capital letters, uh, male gaze, but that doesn't even quite cover it. Cause let's, let, let's be clear. Uh, this is not simply about showing women with bare breasts no. because you know what? Nope. Hey, all of these movies, a lot of these movies, I don't say all of them, but a lot of these movies have, you know, a little, a little, you know, TNA there. Um, you know, Conan the Barbarian does, sure. but it's more than just, Oh, Hey, we have some some naked ladies in there for uh you know uh, for the fellas, um, but it's 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 the view of women that this movie espouses that is on uh, is much uh, sort of it's a much deeper thing. The the problem with it is that it is the viewpoint of the hero of the film, and the film is clearly yes. inviting us to participate in said view and to find that view kind of charming and hilarious. And these things are not charming and they are not hilarious. Like Conan the Barbarian, this film revolves around a son whose parents are murdered and who seeks revenge for that act. The key difference with The Sword and the Sorcerer is that it largely skips over Talon's formative years. He leaves as a boy and returns as a warrior of great renown. Um, and, And obviously, this movie was made at a lower budget than Conan the Barbarian. And I think director Albert Pune is really good at making what money he has work. Uh, and he's particularly good at creating atmosphere. Yeah. Um, like if you look at the opening sequence where Cromwell arrives, uh, they, Cromwell and his soldiers arrive at this tomb 
to to resurrect uh, the sorcerer Zusha, and and it's I think it's incredibly effective. Like you have this moment where the faces are in the sarcophagus, and it's like the souls that he's captured, and it's really creepy and and effective. And then you know they resurrect Zusha, and he just grabs a heart out of this woman, like he just just straight up, like you know, force pulls a heart out of this woman, and it's. All of that is really effective. What's strange to me is that immediately after this in, this extended and effective prologue, the the sorcerer is sidelined. Like Cromwell turns on him fairly quickly, and then you went through all that trouble to wake him up, and now you just don't need him. Yeah, it's so weird. well, and it's and it's it's unclear to me. Cromwell, when he goes to the sorcerer, is essentially saying, "I keep getting my ass kicked by King Richard." I've tried to go in there four times. It never works. I can't do it. He wakes up the sorcerer. We don't even see what the sorcerer did for Cromwell. And then Cromwell just says, I don't need him anymore. Time to kill him. And I am left scratching my head. Um, it's one of the few plot points yeah. where I just, it it doesn't make sense to me. The, the movie is not, the rest of the movie is not quite in that vein at all. Um, but it does show the problem of calling a movie The Sword and the Sorcerer and you don't have much of the sword and you really don't have much of the sorcerer. And you don't have much of the sorcerer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I had the same. I actually wrote like, you know, for a movie called The Sword and the Sorcerer, both of those elements are absent for a large portion of the film. Um, now, there is a twist and we'll get into that sure. in a bit. Um, but that said, I do think it's an interesting dynamic that they set up having both Talon and Zusha have vendettas against Cromwell. And, and that's, it's an interesting potential dynamic that the movie doesn't really fully take advantage of. Uh, but it's an interesting thought. We have to talk about the sword. <laughs> the sword, Rob. Talon's, Talon has his father's sword, which is this triple-bladed sword, which just from the look of it, would be impossible to wield effectively. <laughs> I mean, you just, like, there's no way there's any balance to that sword whatsoever. Uh, I'm sorry, this sword um, is amazing. It would totally work. You're a glaive <laughs> denier, so I'm not going to listen to you about I this I was going to say, it comes in right underneath <laughs> the glaive as far as dumbass weapons. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, but wait, we haven't we haven't covered the best oh, the part, which better. is that like an accessory for an action <laughs> figure, the two outer blades can shoot out like projectile weapons. I what is the technology that accomplishes this? I have no idea. And but once you fired both blades, do you have to go around and pick them up again? Like it's just like is there somewhere to get spare blades? Is Don't it, care. Don't care about any of these uh, practical details. Seeing uh, swords shoot out of another sword is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not as dumb as the glaive. I'll say that. <laughs> I wanted more of it. My problem isn't that the swords shot out. It's that there weren't more swords shooting out of another sword. Yeah. You don't get enough yeah. of it, to be perfectly honest. Once we, we jump ahead to Talon's return to Adan, the movie actually throws a lot of characters at you and political relationships fairly quick. The rebellion is led by Prince Micah and Princess Alana, who are the children of the former king's close advisor. And at one point, I think we saw them as children. I thought we saw yeah, them early. as children in the yeah. prologue, but then I don't think it's supposed to be them. I'm not, I, I wasn't clear on that. Also a factor is Cromwell's war chancellor, Michelli 
played by George Maharis, whose loyalty is a question mark for most of the film. At first, he seems like he's working for the rebels, uh, but then perhaps he isn't. Um, and it and and there's interesting things with that character. All I could think of is uh, with George Maharis in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when uh, when Rick Dalton is talking about the the role for the Great Escape. You know, when it looked like Steve McQueen might go, and it came down to him and three Georges, uh, three Georges, Kaharis, Maharis, and Papart. And you will never convince me that Michelli, the character in The Sword and the Sorcerer, wasn't named after the Italian restaurant in Hollywood. Uh, (laughs) I guarantee you it was. Because that restaurant's been there forever. I guarantee you it was. Oh, what do we name the guy? How about Michelli? Yeah, we'll give him an Italian kind of name. So we want something that sounds like, uh, you know, the the prince, the author of The Prince. Machiavelli. Machiavelli. But we can't use Machiavelli. Oh, wait, hey, there's that Italian joint down the the street. The one that we're eating lunch in right now. (laughs) Yes. Oh, one of my issues with the film is that Talon never feels like he's in real danger. Like they, they want to give him this roguish charm, but I, 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 until very late in the film, he always just feels like it's ha ha, you know, like it's very kind of like, it's like, this is supposed to be a guy out for revenge. And I don't ever feel like that. He's a little too casual. Yeah. I mean, even Conan, who is in many ways a super powered individual, doesn't skate through life <laughs> at all. It feels like Talon is untouchable. Right. Like when he's, when they're doing the gladiator scenes mm-hmm. with Conan, it's difficult. You could see how difficult it is and how he learns and gets better over time. Here, Talon's just good at everything all the time. Well, maybe not good at everything, like being a good person. Well, <laughs> he's definitely not good well, at that. Now we get into, so Prince Micah is captured and Alana uh, goes to Talon to try and get him to rescue Prince Micah. And, you know, Talon, who, who should be ready to take down Cromwell for his own reasons, uh, basically says, oh, he's only going to do it for the money. But he doesn't want money. What does he want, Rob? He wants to sleep with Alana. He wants her to prostitute herself to him. Uh, and, and before this, even, in the lead up to it, <laughs> Alana is in the alleyway and three men are about to rape her. And this is not, look, I know this is a trope in older movies that the hero comes in to save a woman from being raped, you know, and it's casually tossed off as just a, a point to like show you that he is a hero. Uh, Although in here, they completely undercut that immediately. But also in the beginning, I, I, I mean, it is a super unsettling attempted rape. I mean, and the things that they're saying and the way that it's shot yeah. and the music, I mean, it is highly disturbing in a way that uh, this movie should never be, frankly. Right. That even Conan the Barbarian wasn't. And that's got a cannibal orgy in it, for goodness sake. Yeah. And then when Talon comes in, it's the tone flips where it's kind of like, oh, I'm here. And you're like, it is just, it feels yeah. so wrong. Um, uh, Just with that tone flip, like, oh, this is. Now we're just going to treat this casually. And then yeah. he instantly turns around and is like, well, now you're going to have sex with me, right? And he's like demanding it. At one point when he, yeah. when she's asking him to free her brother who is going to be murdered, uh, he like moves the table in a way where it's he's pantomiming that he's got a giant boner under the table and it's moving it up because it's so strong and manly. I, 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 I don't even know what to say. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and uh, I will say that it was in that scene in the alleyway that we do get uh, Alana's go-to move, yeah. which is a knee to the balls. Uh, she does it a couple of times, and 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 I was like, it, it, there's a moment later, we'll get to at the end of the film, where I'm like, I actually said, oh, she's going to go for the balls again. And she does, and it's, it, there's, there's, well, we'll get into what happens. Uh, it's, it's Chekhov's knee to the balls, Chris. <laughs> it's Chekhov's knee to the balls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, eventually Talon does agree to rescue the prince. And, uh, of course he, it's not long after that, that he's captured, um, and, and, you know, finds himself in the, in the dungeon, uh, with, with the architect of the castle, which I have no idea why Cromwell didn't just kill that dude. Like why lock him up? You don't need him anymore. Uh, but, oh, the, the architect promises to show him all the secrets of the castle. Um, and, you know, I, Here's a, here's the thing about this movie. Oh, and you mentioned it earlier with uh, with Cromwell's invasion. A lot of key things happen off screen. Yeah, and I'm sure some of that was budgetary related. But like, you get this moment where Talon's men are preparing to like get into the castle and rescue him, and they're going to be led in there by Cromwell's mistress, who is a badass, by the way. I will say that Cromwell's mistress is kind of a badass. Uh, and we we then cut to them all in the dungeon. And we don't see how they got captured. Nope. It's just like, honestly, I rewound it because I thought at one point, did I, did I skip a scene? Like, did it, did the, did the Blu-ray, did the Blu-ray skip a scene or something? And, but no, it didn't. It was just, hey, cut to, they're in, in jail. Yeah. And when you cut to them in jail, what line is uttered? Oh, it's, uh, and I'm probably paraphrasing, uh, we should have never followed that bitch into the dungeon because Ugh. they were led in in the secret way yeah. by uh yeah. you know the consort of by the mistress of, of Cromwell yeah. and all of that and they were like yeah lead us in we're all going to save our friend which by the way no one is less deserving of having this many people willing to die for them than Talon we never see him actually do anything for any one of these people there's no hinting at the past and it's just they show up and they go talon and and the other lords eventually where it's they, they just in a line of dialogue yeah, oh at the end they're yeah, all they're yeah. all talon talon yeah oh god cromwell is is preparing for his wedding and at at at, at the wedding he plans to assassinate the other lords of the of the kingdom or other the lords of the of the realm um as if he's michael corleone and they're the heads of the five families uh, which leads me to a couple things. One, I want to see more sword and the sorcerer themed weddings because you know her, her, you know her wedding dress and his costume that he's getting married in. I think uh, is all fantastic. So will will uh, will the bride need to be fully naked and get her butt oiled before the wedding, like in this one? Uh, is that part of the package? Well, you know, I mean, according to everybody, you know their desires. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. Uh, I want to mention the interior of Cromwell's castle, where the big wedding and the melee that follows was filmed at the Mission Inn in Riverside, California. Uh, and that is still open today. Uh, if you go, tell them, get me another sent you. They won't have a clue what you're talking about, but it would be fun to say. And I believe if you go, uh, because many, many presidents stayed there in the past, back uh, in the day, uh, I believe... That is the inn in Riverside. I have a picture of myself where you can sit in William Howard Taft's chair, specially built for him. 
and it is oh he was a big guy yeah yeah it's it's amazing and you will feel small yeah that's oh wow that's interesting i see that that was a fact i didn't know about the mission in not that I, you know, like I'm an expert. I, I haven't even been there. Well, oh, here's something else where, where Talon has in, in common with Conan. As, we, as you mentioned, they both get crucified. Um, and as part of, uh, you know, Talon is kind of hanging at one end of the, of the, of the room as if he's a, a decoration uh, for the wedding. And if you think Talon is just going to hang there. Hell no. Think again. No way, man. Because he rips off his own, like he rips the nail through his hand to, to get to, to climb off the this cross that he's been put on uh, and just in time to join the Malek. Yeah, because when you have punctured all of the tendons and bones in your palm on both hands, you can instantly <laughs> just grab a sword and start fighting like nothing has happened. Well, it's also it's like the, the bit at the very beginning in, in the, the prologue where he's he's a kid and he's wielding the, oh, the yeah. stupid sword thing <laughs> and he gets he gets an arrow to the hand and he's able to to pull it off so you know he's clearly you know, it's it's uh, you know it happens um and then we get the fight between Talon and Cromwell oh. uh, which spills down into the dungeon and in the lead up to that um, there's one there's oh, a yeah. sequence that I absolutely love so I want to call it out please when he when he's fighting after pulling himself off the cross you get all these slow cross dissolves into slow motion shots of Talon throwing dudes around the room and then catching the sword as it's thrown to him. And it's all in smoke and red light. And I was just, I will say that shit was amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of slow motion and a lot of red light. And I will say it is both of those techniques are used to great effect. Like it, it, it's, this is where I think he, this is where Pune is really good at creating atmosphere and, and you know, the, the action beats like it, 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 there are elements of this movie that really work. There's elements of this movie that ne- don't necessarily work uh, in terms of it, in particular, it's gender politics, but um, you know, there's, there's some good action stuff and there's some good atmosphere in it. And then, and the, and the final fight in the dungeon is really good. Um, you know, Cromwell and Talon, sort of their fight spills down in this dungeon. You have Michelli manhandling Princess Alana. And it's at this point that I'm like, oh, she's going to need him in the balls. And sure enough, she does, or at least she tries to. For in what was truly an unexpected moment. Twist. Twist. He tears his face off. And it's actually, we learn that Michelli is actually Zusha in disguise. And I got to say... I honestly did not see that coming. No, not at all. I did not. It was like that was really and good. The Zusha tearing off his own uh bot the Michelli body and all of that. This yes. is I mean, this is like some Hellraiser shit in this movie. I, yeah. I it, and it looks good. Uh I mean it looks t- it awful does. and terrifying, it really does. but it looks good. And I this combined yeah. with the the early kind of hellish like Freddy Krueger faces that were in the uh the tomb at the beginning i mean it really did make me like wow i wanted more zusha in this thing baby but uh yeah yeah um uh, but here's my question how long was zusha michelli 
Like at one point early when you see Zusha, he says he's been reco- he's been asleep for eight years yeah. recovering, and I feel like it would take more than a couple of years to become the king's war counselor. Mm-hmm. Like that's not just a role you step into. So is there a real Michelli? Did he did he is he impersonating someone else? Is there a real Michelli locked up somewhere or or dead in a ditch? Uh, you know, like the film never gives us that answer. But uh, inquiring minds want to know. I want to know. Yeah, uh, I have no idea. Uh, there's several points that you could say that Michelli uh, acts differently for unexplained reasons in this film that could be a point at which Zusha took him over right. or whatever. Who knows? Um, at the end of the film, now, if I understand this right, Talon is the rightful heir to the throne. Yeah. His father was the king. But at the end of the film, he doesn't claim the throne for himself. He allows Micah to take the throne. Uh, but he's damn sure to get the payment that he was promised from Alana before riding off in pursuit of other adventures and more coerced sex. It is amazingly terrible. Um, <laughs> like when when Talon gets the brother out of prison earlier uh, and they're trying to escape and uh, the brother's like, I owe you one. Talon literally says, no, your sister owes me one. Yeah. And then at the end, where every other movie... I guess I'll say this. They didn't do what everyone else does. That's true. Where the roguish hero would learn his lesson that he loves Alana and probably become the rightful heir and like, let's make this kingdom together or whatever. uh, And then marry Alana. No, he literally has his one night stand jokes about it with his guys when they're about to ride off. Yep. Um, And then uh, he said, yeah, the, Oh no. One of his men's like, aha, the debt's been paid general. I think is the line. And then uh, I I was like, this whole, the whole thing is really so he could just bone for one night and then he's gone. Uh, (laughs) Well, that said, this film also joins other eighties films, such as the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai and making the grade and Dr. Detroit by having the end credit promise the sequel. In this case, Talon's next adventure Tales of the Ancient Empire. Coming soon. Now, Rob, I'm going to tell you something. Because obviously they did not make that movie immediately after. But guess what? Albert Pune actually ended up making that movie. Except it took him till 2010 to do it. It was a direct-to-video Tales of the Ancient Empire. Uh, I'm not sure it's quite the sequel Pune intended. But Lee Horsley makes an appearance as Talon. Uh, in 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 what was a follow up that may have to be a bonus episode. Is the sword in it? Do we know? I I need to know. I don't know. We'll have to find out. Okay. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. It's it's. Uh, in any case, it, it, this is just the beginning of our journey into the sword and sorcery films that followed Conan the Barbarian. Um, we hope you enjoyed the show, and that you'll join us again next week when we'll be talking about one of the most well known and well loved. Sword and Sorcery films from this era, The Beastmaster. Yes. Which played incessantly on HBO through the 80s, uh, as well as one of the first of several Italian-made entries into the genre, Ator the Fighting Eagle. (laughs) I'm excited for Ator the Fighting Eagle. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, Please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your enemies. 
Tell the sorcerer that you've awakened from his, his centuries of slumber. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another.